You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Senior Fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. There has been lots of discussion lately about quantum computing and whether the U.S. is falling behind other countries. Questions have been raised about what it is, how it is being used, and what the United States should do to improve future opportunities. To discuss these important questions, we are pleased to be joined by a distinguished expert. Dr. Joseph Keller is a visiting fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings and the author of a Brookings paper entitled U.S. Quantum Leadership May Hinge on Public Perceptions. We will discuss that paper and get Joe's thoughts on quantum computing. So, Joe, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. Of course, Daryl. Thanks so much for having me. In your paper, you say quantum computing is a potentially transformative force across many different sectors. For all the people who are not very familiar with quantum computing, can you give us a short explanation of what it is and how it differs from traditional computers? Absolutely. Quantum creates new ways to approach computing problems that classical or traditional computers have difficulty doing. It ultimately uses the foundations of quantum mechanics. If we can take ourselves way back to physics class, it's that fundamental theory that describes the behavior of matter and energy. So in order to perform computations differently, instead of using, for example, a series of zeros or ones to represent information, quantum computers represent information in ways that can be both zeros and ones at the same time or any numerical value in between. And so it enables you to represent more information and they're much more powerful. Our traditional computers run on bits and they increase linearly when you add more bits. So 20 bits are 20 times more powerful than one bit, but quantum bits also called qubits are scaling exponentially. So if we have 20 qubits, that means that it's 1 million times more powerful than one qubit. And so some classical computers can run out of space or memory when performing some intensive computations. So the aspects of quantum physics give it this much higher level of performance. But the great power of quantum computing is also one of its greatest weaknesses. It's really sensitive to perturbations and noise in its surroundings. So the research is still working on improvements in a couple of ways. One, trying to increase the scale. And two, trying to improve its reliability and resistance to error and noise because it's an extremely unstable and sensitive system. So that is one of the best descriptions of quantum computing that I ever have heard. I thank you for uh, providing that overview, and I'm sure our listeners will really benefit from that. Now, I know a lot of the work on quantum now is theoretical. How far along is it? How long will it take to develop it? And how might it actually be used in the future? You're right. A lot of the work is theoretical at this point. They're mostly doing experiments to test what is possible, but we do have quantum computers physically, but they're mostly not useful for everyday computing tasks. They're more like special purpose tools 
and even the workable quantum computers we do have aren't necessarily better than traditional computers to deal with computations that we have day to day. So the bottom line is for, for pretty much everything you need to do related to computing, you don't need quantum, but this is going to change. It's unclear when it's going to change, but people think that it could have access to a more practical quantum computer in perhaps five to 10 years. So then we're hoping to use them for situations when computational power used to be a bottleneck, like in experimentation and simulation. However, since we're in DC, for sure, the excitement around quantum is connected to the security implications. Because of its importance, I know Congress is moving to reauthorize the National Quantum Initiative. Where is Congress in its consideration of quantum? Uh, what are the odds of action in this area? And what is that initiative actually seeking to accomplish? Yeah, you're, you're right. 2024 could be a really important year for the future of quantum and research in the U.S. The five-year horizon for the first iteration of this National Quantum Initiative is up. So now Congress is moving towards its reauthorization. It's a really important piece of legislation that's essential for allocating resources towards research and development, while also addressing key issues around national security around workforce and around the supply chains necessary for quantum information, science and technology. But recently the House Science Committee has been working on it. They unanimously passed the reauthorization at the end of last year in December, and it was a bipartisan effort. And so we know this committee has a long history of working on tech related issues like AI and contributing to important bills like the Chips and Science Act. So now we're hoping they finish the job. Next up with the full consideration from the House and then work with the Senate to get it to the president's desk. But, but as you know, Daryl, there's a lot of discussion about tech already keeping folks busy in the Senate. And so I'd say the only app challenges uh, that we're dealing with are competing priorities like AI um, and any political friction that we see coming up to election season. Well, the good news, as you point out, is at least at the initial committee stage, there was a great deal of bipartisanship. So hopefully that will bode well for ultimate action. Uh, 2024 is a complicated year for all the reasons that you mentioned, notwithstanding the fact we have our national elections and that always makes it difficult to pass major legislation. But the fact that both parties understand the importance of this, uh, you mentioned the security implications, hopefully that will be enough to uh, push things uh, over the line. Now, we know that other countries are also investing in quantum. I'm just curious how other countries are handling this issue. I mean, we know, for example, China is putting a lot of money into this area. Uh, what is it doing? And what are other nations doing that we should be paying attention to? So the U.S. is certainly not alone when it comes to an interest in quantum. And actually, much of the interest globally is not coming from the U.S. right now. China is indeed putting a lot of resources in that space. They've made it a top priority. Their investments alone account for about half of the global total investments that we see. And China is really pushing to make breakthroughs in encryption using quantum. So this is a big deal. You know that being able to use quantum computing to change the landscape of cryptography, the things that you use to, to code the, the tech issues and tech things that we think are very important. Cracking those codes that were previously impossible for classical computers. But it's 
it's kind of hard to know what China is up to in terms of their research and their development, but we should assume that they're at least in line, if not slightly ahead of what things are happening in the West. But countries like uh, Canada and several countries in the European Union are also making lots of progress. It's a global priority. So I know the big question that everybody is asking about a variety of tech questions, including AI, is, is the U.S. falling behind other countries on quantum? And you mentioned uh, China represents half of the global spending that's taking a place in that area. So, of course, there's a worry about whether the U.S. is going to fall behind uh, China. Uh, what's your uh, sense of where the U.S. stands vis-a-vis -vis other countries? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think the U.S. is necessarily falling behind, but it's certainly worried that it might be. The U.S. spends about a billion dollars a year on quantum research, but that needs to increase, and, and that goes along with the passing of this National Quantum Initiative reauthorization. But not too long ago, the Biden-Harris administration felt some urgency around this, and they issued a series of directives for quantum. One of those moves gave the White House direct authority over the National Quantum Initiative Advisory Committee. So that keeps it close to the White House and asked the government agencies to, to take a closer look at how quantum is relevant for their work and to also figure out what potential security risks are looming for them. But there's more on the horizon. Uh, the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, NIST, which is very much tied to a lot of AI work right now, um, risk management framework and others. They've historically dealt with the standardization of algorithms that can withstand attacks from quantum computers. And so looking at to next year, they're expected to publish new standards for encryption and, and they're necessary for the U.S. to keep up with tech advances and make sure that cybersecurity defenses are up to date. In your Brookings paper, you argue that workforce development is a key need for quantum. Uh, you point out that we have to have workers who are skilled in math, computing, and information sciences, as well as other uh, specialized technologies. What should the U.S. be doing to develop its quantum workforce? So this is really hard because quantum is one of those far out uh, emerging tech fields. But I think like it needs to become a field with more direct applications and try to close the gap between showing potential and actually solving real world problems. So the US needs quantum jobs across a number of sectors. We, we need it in academia and in industry, and of course we need it in government. And they can come from a variety of backgrounds, uh, STEM backgrounds and otherwise. And within that conversation, I think foreign talent is absolutely an asset. And so the US will need uh, workers from abroad to fill vacant roles, but ultimately, it may require some changes in visa policy. So for example, too few Americans have the necessary training and education in STEM. And even many of the international workers who themselves are educated in the US, they sometimes choose to leave and they find a way back to places like Australia, Canada, and the UK where they find visa barriers are much lower for entry. And so perhaps we need to revisit some of those policies and find the connection back to cultivating a robust STEM workforce. It's interesting you mentioned the immigration theme, and of course that is a big part of the U.S. presidential election, a lot of concern about immigrants coming across the border. But I think what a lot of people don't understand is how closely tied technology innovation is to immigration. Uh, for example, there was a study 
showing, you know, half of the Silicon Valley, Valley uh, companies had an immigrant founder or co-founder. Like immigrants have fueled a lot of the advances in American technology innovation over a number of decades. And one of my personal concerns is if we actually start to crack down on immigration, I think people don't appreciate how we actually are cracking down on technology innovation at the same time. Now, we could fill that gap if more native-born Americans were taking uh, courses in these STEM fields, but we know that they're not. And so if we don't have a situation where native-born Americans are uh, advancing in the STEM fields and we're cracking down on immigrants who have STEM uh, skills, that is a very terrible combination for the future of the United States. That's a great point. So I'm curious if you were advising young people who might be interested in the field of quantum computing, what skills do they need and how might they actually get into the quantum area? Well, so it's interesting. One of the places we need to start is with education in schools. And so I hope we talk about that. I think for the students, one thing to recognize is that quantum computing and quantum information science and technology isn't this abstract uh, unknown scientific field. It's really undergirding a lot of the science that people understand. It's undergirding physics. It's infused with chemistry. And so trying to identify the ways that uh, quantum education, quantum concepts can be elevated and isolated within their existing STEM curricula, I think that's a nice way to, to point out, look, these are places where the things that you're already learning can be applied specifically to this new and emerging field. So I mentioned the Brookings paper that you wrote, which is entitled U.S. Quantum Leadership May Hinge on Public Perceptions. So I want to talk about that public perceptions uh, aspect. So in this paper, you call for a quantum literacy program that educates the public about quantum computing. Where is the public on quantum and why do we need an education campaign? So there are actually already some really good programs underway. They just need more resources and they need greater scale. So I think, again, the reauthorization of the National Quantum Initiative could really help with that. We need to do better on public education and literacy because quantum just can't be something that only experts in science and engineering know about. Um, it's my view that society needs to be behind it too. So quantum doesn't necessarily need this world-changing moment like we saw in AI when ChatGPT broke through and got into the hands of hundreds of millions of people around the world, but I think it does deserve our undivided attention and resources. It is important on its own. And a lot of education, I think, starts in the classroom. So for example, the National Science Foundation, NSF, supports a program called the National Q12 Education Partnership. This is a program that connects directly with teachers to help them engage students effectively. So one of the ways to focus is on teachers and educators to support them. We need to equip them with the right training and resources to help infuse quantum into their existing workforce and their existing curricula, um, help them show how quantum comes up in other fields. And then I think it's also important to meet people where they are. And teachers, again, are essential for this. So the U.S., you're talking about whether the U.S. is behind. I think the U.S. is behind in this regard. And so other countries are actually finding ways to teach the science that's underlying quantum to their students. The, Nether the Netherlands, for example. So, you know, why aren't we? So you 
say that the public has a number of fears about quantum. What are those fears and what can we do to alleviate them? That's a great question. So not so much the fear that keeps them up at night, but more that it can be opaque. It can be scary, it can be intimidating concept to wrap your head around. You know, sometimes people fear what they don't understand. You may not exactly know how your laptop works, for example, or, or what powers your chatbot that you might use, but you still use it. We don't yet have the same trust and familiarity with quantum. But there's also just a limited exposure effect to the public. It's really expensive to build a quantum computer. It's only exclusive to folks like IBM and Google and big national labs. And so it's not always clear to average folks what quantum computing can or cannot do. And it's actually come, it's succumbed to its own flavor of hype too. Um, and that's tied to some commercial applications. So, so the more we can socialize the topic, perhaps, it will seem less strange. And I think it's hard to get to know something you can't really touch. There are a few right now, few real world applications available, people to see how and why it works. And I think that makes it difficult too. So a number of people have commented on the lack of diversity in the tech workforce and how few scholars of color are in that STEM area. What can we do to improve inclusion and diversity in STEM? This is still a really difficult challenge, not exclusive to quantum, of course, trying to increase the diversity in, in STEM. And I know that this has come up several times and been a recurring theme on the podcast before. So I think when it comes to the workforce pipeline, we need to know that diversity is key for US competitiveness. And with regard to the National Quantum Initiative reauthorization, it has some specific provisions that are meant to improve participation for women and other historically underrepresented groups. So I think that's another reason it will be important to see it pass. But we also need to intervene, I think, at critical moments. Women and students of color often self-select out of hard math classes. They say that this stuff just really isn't for me. And, and often this happens in K-12 education, specifically in middle school, grades six through eight. And so trying to identify the opportunities and we can intervene. And so show the students how we can help see themselves in this quantum future, perhaps building out a network of mentors that can specifically and directly connect them with potential careers and provide this pipeline, um, getting folks from the classroom with interest into productive occupations. I've seen some studies that go back to middle school and suggest that there aren't as many variations based on gender and race, but that as students go through high school and then college and then graduate school, then we start to see uh, women and uh, minorities start to drop out of STEM fields. And so it, I always found that interesting because it suggests there isn't a big difference in the initial interest, but there's something about passing through the education system that dims that interest and creates the problems that you're uh, talking about. So uh, clearly we need to do a better job, uh, both in, at the high school level, the college level, and the uh, graduate school level. That sounds right to me. And, and to your point about many courses that are structured specifically in ways um, that they call weed out courses, and some of them, their ambition ultimately is to try to narrow the field of people that actually get through, that actually receive the education for these important foundational courses. And so I think that too, that perspective 
that culture may also need to change to your point. So earlier in our conversation, you mentioned the issue of security and how that is a big challenge in many areas, many technology areas, but also in uh, this topic of quantum computing. Given the geopolitical tensions between the United States and China, what should the U.S. do to safeguard its quantum initiatives? So we're in D.C. This is one of the most important issues that's driving interest here in this town think that many of the countries that have the capability around quantum are currently trying to make advances to improve their security and defend themselves against future cyber attacks. Most of these are prospective actions. And so we just learned uh, that Russia, for example, and China have built between them a quantum computing channel, quantum communication channel. And so this is important because quantum communication is another subfield of quantum information science and technology. And this specific technology can make it more difficult for other folks to eavesdrop or spy on conversations between the two of them. And so it demonstrates a very small example, potentially, of a network that can be scaled up to be this very exclusive conversational bubble. So this is important for the US to keep track of and very much tied to the way quantum is going around security. So given the developments and the possibility of more developments like this in the future, I think it's really important to be prepared and to leverage agencies like the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. I think they're absolutely critical for this. And I would also say there are um, a few items on the quantum agenda for the U.S. First, of course, reauthorize the National Quantum Initiative um, but also post-quantum protection needs to become a priority. This is especially important for what we consider to be high-value targets, things like banks, things like telecom companies and federal agencies. They need to develop the necessary cryptographic algorithms that can be resistant to future attacks by quantum computers. We're now preparing currently for a future um, that we don't necessarily understand or don't have much certainty about what will happen. So we talked early about, earlier about the role of NIST within this specific process. So I think this reinforces the need for the reauthorization for the, the National Quantum Initiative, but it also supports future investments and continued investments at a high level in research for agencies like the National Science Foundation, like Department of Energy and for NIST, which is underneath commerce. Joseph, this was a terrific conversation. I think our listeners will benefit from the expertise that you brought to this topic, the explanation of what quantum computing is, what the opportunities are, what some of the challenges that we face, and what the United States can do to meet those challenges and improve the situation. So I really want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. At Brookings, we write regularly about digital technology. You can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. And those of you who are interested in reading Joe's paper, U.S. Quantum Leadership May Hinge on Public Perceptions, you can also find that on the brookings.edu website. So thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis 
from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. Thank you.